Hi, I wanted to pop in here real quick and update you with Liberty's Pivot in case you haven't been following along on Instagram. We recorded this interview before Christmas and before we officially announced our new brand and direction, so I wanted to provide a little context here. I had been feeling an internal shift for a few years and had been too afraid to abandon Liberty's mission to a broader audience of women with an entrepreneurial spirit, but it became more and more clear through my own journey that it was time for a change. Now, we'll continue to share stories on our podcast of women with an entrepreneurial spirit, but we'll focus on voices over 40. As much as I believe that cross-mentoring is essential to building each other up, I found that the issues facing those approaching or in midlife pretty unique and deserving of some attention. So I'll use this platform to accomplish three things. One, to share stories that enable you to create your own because I believe we must see, or in this case hear, to become. We must have examples of what's possible to help us consider our own possibilities. Two, I want to help us reimagine and redefine what midlife looks like. If you woke up this morning, you're not finished. It's not over. There's more for you to receive, to give, and to become. And three, to consider our individual and collective purpose at a time in life when experience, wisdom, and self-awareness come into focus, many of us are stepping away from pursuing anything new. Now just imagine a world where more and more women stepped into midlife ready to create, to innovate, to lead, unite, support, and even heal others, and heal ourselves. Imagine a world where her vision, your vision, for a brighter future is pursued and realized. I know that I'm not finished, but I don't always know what's next. It's been a long and winding road, and there are still unrealized dreams. I have more to learn, more to offer, and more to become, and my guess is you do too. So that's the reason for the pivot and the new brand, Liberty Road. Now enjoy this interview with Michaela. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty for Her. Today, you guys have the distinct pleasure of listening to somebody that I've known actually for a very long time and that I've been able to watch her live into um, her calling. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that word and what it means and what she thinks it means. But it's such a special treat for me. And I, I know it's going to be a special treat for you. Welcome with me, Michaela O'Donnell. Welcome, Michaela. Thanks, Netta. You've been such a part of me getting here. So it's really special for me to be here with you today. Yeah, that, that means a lot to hear. I know uh, there's, there's a, a, a a tribe of people that have come alongside you to do the important work that you've done. And I consider myself lucky to be 
even one of them for, for a brief time in your life, having you on here as an expert. We're focusing on your book, which this is going to be on YouTube, so I can actually show it here. And I want you to talk about this book, Make Work Matter. What prompted you to write this? Yeah, Make Work Matter, the subtitle is Your Guide to Meaningful Work in a Changing World. And I have to be honest, Netta, I mean, this is mostly a book to myself, right? My mm-hmm. younger self, the all the career stuff I was trying to work out and didn't feel like I had tools a decade ago. Even some of the stuff that I, I've, you know, you and I have worked out, you as a business coach, it's like, where, how did I get, you know, getting it all in one place? And then eventually I went and did some PhD work where I asked some questions through really specific lenses using specific research tools. So I had all this data and, you know, took that data and then tested it in, in my work at a, at a graduate school. And so this book really is the compilation of all of that stuff. Okay, I had some questions as a person early on that were really hard to answer. I surprisingly started to spend my own work time getting pretty serious about trying to answer those questions and help others yeah. answer them too. And then the book is a is sort of an outpouring of that work. And tell us a little bit about the book as it pertains to faith, because, and we're going to get into kind of your background and, and why that was foundational for the book and the work that you're doing now. But why did you come at it from those two intersections or from those two yeah. places where they intersect? Right. Why work in faith? Um, uh, uh, such an important question. And I think this can be something that it really means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. But what it's meant to me is, even as I was just talking about, like the questions I had and the wrestling I was doing, that felt like really deep work. It felt like mm-hmm. really internal work. It felt like soul work. Yeah. Um, and that then is uh, something I want to put in conversation with faith because faith frameworks are at their heart supposed to be that same kind of soul work stuff. And we don't always so obviously put work in, you know, external paid kind of work into that soul category. But I, I think it is. And I think that there's some some issues with that and some things to celebrate about that. But, you know, I'm an entrepreneur by just kind of my uh, my DNA. That's how I. Yeah. That's how I'm built. It's who my parents are. So when I work in the world, it's an expression of me. I'm creating something, and whatever I do matters so much. So when things don't go well, it's very disappointing. Mm-hmm. When things do go well, it feels like oh, this is an expression of everything I've been hoping for, and the whole spectrum in between. And that feels like soul work, and it feels yeah. like something I want. I want to be able to wanted to be able to develop some language and some frameworks about labeling it as such. We will get deeper into the conversation, but you talk about towards the end of the book about grieving, and it was really yeah. interesting for me to read that in context um, to my work, the work that I've done, mm-hmm. the successes I've had, the failures I've I, I've had, many more lessons learned than celebrated successes. And so it was really interesting to understand from your context, the import of grieving. So I'm excited to get into that part of your soul work. You're the executive director at the Fuller Dupree Center. What does that mean? What does that entail? And how is that kind of braided into the work that you did in the book? Yeah, great question. So I am the executive director of the Max Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary is a graduate school that historically trains pastors for service. 
Um, along the way, the, Fuller decided that psychology and sort of mental health was an important part of spirituality. And today it's a graduate institution that serves people who want to be counselors and psychologists and those who want to be in ministry in the broadest sense, right? Yeah. Sometimes pastors, but in the world's the world's really changed. So yeah. as part of that work at Fuller Seminary, we have a bunch of different centers. And I am the executive director of a center named after Max Dupree. Max Dupree was longtime CEO of Herman Miller, which yeah. is a furniture. Yeah, you know Herman Miller. Uh, yes, someday, someday when we get rich and famous, Netta will buy the Eames lounge chair, the, <laughs> yeah, there the leather back, the one that's 10 grand. That's not exactly in my budget these days. I am sitting in, uh, if I'm leaning over now and you can see I'm sitting in an Aeron chair. And the, the goal of Herman Miller really is to make uh, beautiful products that are good for people's bodies. And Max was the CEO of this family started company for a long time. The thing about Max that's interesting and is the heart of the work that we're trying to do at the Dupree Center, it, he was the, the chair of the board at Fuller. He was CEO of Herman Miller. He was a granddad. And, and I never got to meet Max. He passed before I came into this role. But people would describe him as just like he was who he was wherever he was. Mm. And yeah, and, and living that kind of seamless life between the different spaces that you're in. He was a person of faith. Fuller Seminary is a place that teaches about Christian faith and theology. We're trying to help leaders do that, be who they are wherever they are and live whole integrated lives. So this book is an expression of that work. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And how great that there could be that marriage, that you didn't have to take time away from the work that you were doing and the things that you cared about to write this book that was both for yourself and now for so many of us who, who are reading it. So let's get into your expertise and all the things that your research and the data from your research taught you about work and, and again, this idea of the importance of work. And one of the things that I think I've struggled with for a long time. And it's something that I think millennials have done a better job at marrying. I think I'm a, I am squarely an Xer, and I think we were starting to hit on it. We were starting to um, really, we were cynical. We were grunge, right? We were all those things. And 90s. I think we, yeah. And we were, we were, starting to question like where is there where is the value there was this re rebellion against this yuppie kind of culture where is the value in the work that we're doing and i was always sort of hell bent on trying to marry this way of making a living um, making my way through the world but also doing something that mattered and i've come i've come full circle and we'll talk about that in a sec but do you think it's too much to ask that we lean into pursuing meaningful work, it almost creates this angst. And, you know, we have to create this work that matters to the world. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Is it too much for us to ask of ourselves or even of organizations that will hire us that we do work that matters? Uh, it, there's so many layers to this, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, to think about for you and I to sit here and talk about, and I'm a person, I want my work to matter, right? I want the thing I do to matter. I've had lots of seasons of feeling totally opposite from that. But for you and I to sit here and talk about doing work that matters is a privileged conversation. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, work throughout the course of human history 
has served mostly a utilitarian need, right? Yeah. Like, it, we're like planting and harvesting and, you know, baking and helping and building and serving one another. And that's been the point of work. It doesn't mean that people haven't loved to do that. It just means that work was utilitarian. Somewhere along the way, and I actually think there's a theological history to this, work started to morph into a place where we become ourselves, right? And where we just, you know, we learn about who we are and we self-actualize and, you know, and therefore we all want it. And there's a a really provocative writer. uh, Have you heard of Derek Thompson? Mm -hmm. He's a, okay, he writes for The Atlantic, I bet you I've read his stuff if it's in the Atlantic. You probably have. Yeah, if it's in the Atlantic, right? It's like one of those, like, they're so good with their headlines. I'm just like in right away. He wrote an article, I think it was in 2019, that I think about pretty much every week. And it's, I forget what the whole, I forget what it's called, but the idea was all about workism, okay? Mm. His argument was that as Americans in particular, we worship something new. We actually worship work. We expect mm. it to be the place where we do our identity stuff, where it, you know we make, where we learn who we are, and 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 like, what are the limits of that? And as a person of faith, like, oh, what are the what are the limits of worshiping the things we do instead of um, something bigger than ourselves? And so, as a Christian practical theologian, which is what my degree is in, I can't move. I can't go into the question: Is meaningful work? too much to ask for with starting with actually the work we're doing, the work you're doing, no matter if it feels good or not already matters to God. And, and yeah. that would be central. And so the real question is, is it too much to ask for work that matters to us or as you said, to the world? And I think that's a place to spend quite a bit of time like and, and to really develop ongoing and healthy expectations Meaning is something worth pursuing, but often, in my experience, I'd be interested to hear what you think, Netta, that meaning is found broken all the way down into very small kind of daily interactions and Mm. things, much more than the grand accomplishments or visions we set out to do. And I've made a lot of peace with the fact that, yeah, a lot of my work matters, whether I'm debriefing my kindergartner's day with her or talking to my neighbor about something or leading a staff meeting when I'm thinking about it in small little increments. So is it too much to ask for work that matters? Sort of depends on what we mean by work that mm. work that matters. And if we're talking about the grandest, like sort of heroic versions of that, I want to take a deep breath and dig into it a bit. And if we're talking about that small kind of incremental stuff that stacks up to make a really meaningful life, I think that's worth doing and worth going after. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I had said I've come full circle on this, and I think I have been thinking about this for a long time, and I started to think, and it's probably a product of my age and having done a variety of things, but it was like, maybe it just needs to matter to me in order to matter in the world. And I and I think it's a lighter way of, we can get really stuck in this idea of pursuing our passion and this sort of, you know, what is my passion? And then there's a lot of navel gazing that goes on. And I think where I've landed for now, and I'm an evolving creature, so we'll check in later. But where I've landed is if it matters to me and I'm, and I'm in the midst of doing that soul work, 
then by design, it's going to matter to other. It's going to impact other. And so it sort of has given some freedom. I, I remember when my daughter was filling out her college applications and trying to figure out like, what major do I put down, you know, for the sake of this application, even if I don't pursue it. And I said, just just figure out what you're curious about. Like, just start there. Don't don't worry about the end. Uh, the reality is there's no gold watch in your future in 25 years anywhere. So just figure out what you're curious about now. And somehow we're going to trust that we are designed to answer those small questions and to lean into those small questions to get to the to the bigger piece of it. So that's that's where I am in that particular question. But um, wanted to hear from you as again you've done so much work on this. Yeah, I, I love your word curious. I mean, I, yeah. I know you to be an incredibly curious person, and there's nothing better than coming along with somebody in their own curiosities. Like that's mm. a, that's a gift to everybody else. And I, I actually think it's a much easier question to answer: What am I curious about versus yeah. what am I good at? What am I passionate about? What am I made to do? These are just, you know, sort of big esoteric things that evolve over the course of a lifetime. And to have the, you know, <laughs> collective audacity to try and answer those questions at 25 or 35 or sometimes even 45, 55, 65, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and just to expect the longevity of discovery and to come at it with a posture of curiosity and and to your to your other point showing up that way in the world is an open posture that has to do with our being that it can't help but impact the doing whatever we get our hands into makes us somebody people want to work with and talk to yeah. and be around and i don't know about you netta but it, you know i'm 38 and so i i'm you know kind of evaluating and trying to think really curiously to use your word about the next like half of my career the next chapter and I, I just I, I think this is the this is the approach and, and any of the work that I imagine myself doing any of the work that matters to me at this point is with other people so a coming curious coming open coming as that person that's it that that's where the rest comes from yeah. So Michaela, you you talk about this idea of mattering relative to other. And there's something in the book that you hit on with regard to organizations and this changing workforce and this reckoning that's being required of so many companies. But you say that the reckoning isn't necessarily coming from the center of these organizations, right? It's coming from, and I want to quote you correctly, well-organized individuals on the margins. Um, what does that mean, and, and what does that mean for us? Yeah, it's great. So I think at the heart of all of this is change, right? Um, you were talking about your daughter and telling her that there's probably not a gold watch at the end of any of these trails. And it's been helpful for me to think about, Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn, talks about like the escalator economy. And this is exactly what you're describing. People get on at some point, and they sort of ride slowly and predictably up the top. And when they get off, there's like a congratulations, a hallelujah, and a gold watch. Now, let's be honest, that worked for some people more than it worked for others. It certainly didn't play out in the same way for men and women. It certainly didn't play out in the same way for white folks and people of color. 
So when we talk about the escalator of economy, uh, historically, it's something that, that worked for some, okay? Not shocking. Many of the systems aren't working as well for um, everybody who's part of them. Now, it's been more helpful for me to think, okay, if we don't have an escalator economy anymore, if we're not doing this, if no one's really doing this, not even the people who used to, what does it actually look like today? And the image that's circled in my mind over and over again is that of a kayaker on whitewater rapids. Mm. And it's like, okay, actually, it doesn't feel like we're ascending neatly and predictably up. It feels like we are traversing rapids where there could be anything <laughs> in the water. We don't know where it's going. We Hopefully, we have a life jacket on. And it's, it's just one rapid after the others. And and yet this is where we find ourselves. So this is this is first of all just the change and naming the change and being honest about what change does to us. I, I and I don't know. I'm not a neuroscientist. Um, thank God, but I'm not a neuroscientist. But I I would predict that we're not really our brains aren't really built to withstand this much change and to withstand mm. withstand the accelerating nature of the world. But the accelerating nature of the world is also giving us many, many gifts. One of those gifts is the dissemination of information, right? Um, I give this very silly uh, but simple analogy in the book about, you know, 30 years ago, if I wanted to make banana bread, which I'm not actually a baker, so but let's just say I want to make banana bread. 30 years ago, I probably would have gone to my, my mom, my grandma, or like a cookbook that's on my shelf. And today, if I wanted to bake banana bread, I like throw it in Google and it within literally one second and met with 400,000 things of which some algorithm has worked that the top page that I'm going to look at are actually all very interesting. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to make one of these things and I'm like, oh, but I want to combine it or, oh, but my mom makes it this way and I want to do this. And at the end of it, I can hashtag like banana bread with my own creation. And anybody then looking at that hashtag on any given platform can make my banana bread. Okay, so why is this silly and simple example important? It's because with the dissemination of information and access to knowledge, we no longer have to just go the same well-worn paths through the world, right? We are no longer in an escalator economy. And when we talk about well-organized individuals on the margins, I'm talking about on the margins of power and organizational system, they're using, folks are using tools that is simply embodying in the banana bread thing that I just talked about to actually awaken our collective consciousness to much more, right? And so then, then you get, you know, events and you get something, and I'm not an expert here, so I'll tread very lightly, but you get you get something like the the murder of George Floyd, and collectively, would our conscious have been raised about that a decade ago or fifteen years ago? Would that have led to riots? And would it let and now now let's get back to work? Would it have led to a really immediate sense of doing even more pronounced diversity, equity, inclusion work in the workforce? I don't know. Probably it probably wouldn't have something in Minneapolis, but today you know, very smart people, people who are smarter than me are able to wield these different tools that come as a result of the same change that is accelerating and a lot to digest. And so that, so like anything that uh, there's like, it's, there's complication, there's grief, there's hope and there's opportunity. 
And the last thing I'll say here is I've come to believe that the changing world of work is part grief and part hope. Mm. It's like grief for what is no longer, if you're someone who would have benefited from the no longer, Mm. and hope and possibility about what might be in this world that in many ways is being shattered wide open. Yeah. And I think for us, and part of why I thought it was so important to have you on is our listeners are made up of entrepreneurs, innovators, creatives, wannabe entrepreneurs, soon to be, I should say, entrepreneurs. And to understand what we're grieving and what is being cracked open, the hope that's being cracked open and how we access that hope and utilize it and then sort of curate it for ourselves to use your hashtag, uh, banana bread, it becomes Michaela's banana bread, but you were accessing all these other things that existed. And on one hand, it creates more noise in the world and we have to find out how to stand out from that noise. On the other hand, it creates so much opportunity for us to find these you know, small networks of like-minded people who hopefully aren't just living in bubbles, but are challenging one another. And um, no matter what, whether it's through their service or their uh, product, whatever the case might be. So I, I loved this idea that we are in a time where the individual is the disruptor. The individual has that power. And I, and I love that you, you, you talk about that, like the baton has somewhat been passed. Um, so then that leads us to this place where, and we hit on it a little bit earlier, and even in my introduction of this idea of calling. So here I am, free to be me. So now I have to decide who me is and what does me have to offer the world. And a lot of us have grown up with this idea that we just find our calling, that there's this thing, this this sort of true north, that if we would be led in that direction, created, I think, a lot of angst for many of us. And a lot of, instead of doing soul work, we just keep hitting our head against the same not North Wall. So talk to me about your definition of calling and then maybe share with us some of those dysfunctions around how we value or evaluate what our calling is. Yeah, thank you. And calling is one of those words that people (laughs) either get super excited about or they're like, I got a lot of baggage there. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's just, just what you said, so true. And it, I, I think I'm on like a one woman mission to liberate liberate people, to use your word, liberty, from some of the unhelpful jargon that's been associated with Christian ease words that mm. really limit a more complex thing that, and some, a more helpful thing. And, you know, I, I think about, let me start at the very end and go back to the center because you were talking about entrepreneurs. And I think one of the particular callings of entrepreneurs is always to find gaps and fill them. Like that's, that's like what we're doing, right? We're finding gaps and we're filling them with something of value. Mm -hmm. And that value comes from uh, who we understand ourselves to be and how we can address the needs we see in the world. And it's just such, I really do believe it's sacred work. Um, Mm -hmm. So that as a particular calling that let me back all the way back up and get back to that particular calling. So the collective speak on calling is that it's really about something we do, right? Something we do. What are, what are you called to do? What's your paid job? And along the way, there's again, there's a theological history here uh, stemming from the Protestant Reformation all the way back to the early church and in, in, in kind of the Christian, Christian lineage, where today we've got this idea that calling equals a paid job I love. And 
calling is a is a theological word. So in order to unpack it, it's fair for any of us, Christian or not, to go back to the Bible that people are drawing that from. And nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that calling is a is a paid job that I love. That's not mm. what calling is. At the very core of what calling is, it's about belonging, actually, before it's about doing. It's about belonging um, to God. And again, drawing from the Bible, it would be about specifically belonging to Jesus Christ. That's, you know, just to go all the way there. Um, it's been helpful for me to think about calling with an image. I guess I may be drawn to images, and that would be as a set of nesting dolls. And mm. in that innermost calling really is the call to belong. The next calling out, the calling that I think I really do think as humans we all share, I can say this a couple different ways. I would start by saying the call to like make things better, right? The call to participate in redemption, to have our eyes on hope, right? Um, and to get really theological. This is like to participate in God's mission in the world. The next layer out is is something that we find in the poem about in, in Genesis, the poem about how human beings were made. And that is, and this is, I think, really resonant for many entrepreneurs, uh, reluctant or um, sort of heartbeat entrepreneurs, either way, is the call to create, right? The call to create in service of other people. Literally Genesis 1 kind of stuff. And so when, then you got the, so let me stack those in, then we'll get back to the particular. You got this central call to belong and the call to make things better, to be a person who cares about redemption, reconciliation, justice, those important things. The next call out, the call to create. And then once you've got those like core, again, that's soul work, that's being work. Once you've got those nested within, the final nesting doll can be all those particulars, the particular mm. people, places, roles. Yes, sometimes jobs and new businesses and ventures that people feel compelled within themselves to do as an expression of those other things that are nested within. And so entrepreneurs, when you're finding gaps and filling them, uh, to me, and I'm, and this is me, I've made sense of being an entrepreneur. It's been an expression of my sense of belonging and what I care about and my capacity to create then comes out in branding and videos and other, you know, sort of creative endeavors. So that's the, the short and the long of, of how I think about calling. And, and in the book, you talk about some of the dysfunctions around that. And you even said earlier, yeah. like, oh, it can be a tough word depending on um, how you view it. For me, it's always been this hopeful word, this idea that, oh, there is this thing that I am, mm. that I am pursuing, or there's this path that will end somewhere. And I think where it became less of a hopeful word was when I started to to see that, oh, I could belong in different areas. And there was a part of me that was talking about work specifically, but then this idea of, you know, call to family, call to friends, call to specifically my children and the work that I was doing as a mother. So it started to become a little more vague and a little more uncomfortable. And even in the work that I've been doing with Liberty, we've played with this idea of calling should we put it in the, you know, in our elevator pitch? Do we include it in our branding? Is it our tagline? And I, there's this hesitancy because I feel like it unnecessarily sort of tries to make something out of a lot of things, make one thing out of a lot of things. And I don't, I'm not sure that we're that 
that, that, that it's that simple. But talk to me, sorry, about the, the dysfunctions that you've sort of recognized that many of us have grappled with when we talk about this, this concept of calling. Yeah, I think the first one is what you just said, which is oversimplification. That's mm-hmm. oversimplification is a is a dysfunction of a yeah, it's dysfunction. So we like to make things simple. We like to make things understandable. Simplicity can be great beauty, but oversimplification without you know leaving room for necessary complexity can be dysfunction. Another one I would I think that we hit on already is that you know calling equals paid work. Mm-hmm. Another one that you're starting to touch on dysfunction that I see operative all the time is that we're called to one special thing and that that thing again is going to play out in our career and that those are just synonymous. Um, Another one that I see play out a ton and has caused me my own heartache along the way is the dysfunctional belief and and we can't help it. We're human, you know, so I'm not trying to say we're bad because we think these things, just the opposite is that just because we feel compelled, because we feel like, you know, move toward something, someone, a way of being, we expect maybe it'll happen all right away or that it'll be easy as it, as it unfolds. And that's, that's, you know, that's just hardly ever the case as, as again, you just yeah. reference. And I think the last one I'll say is that calling the last dysfunctional belief is that calling actually two more one there's this whole hierarchy in Christian circles, right? So it's like calling is church stuff and people who are doing spiritual stuff, they have callings. And that's not what people who, you know, are in the business world have. Now nah, that's just like, like hard pass on that. Not yeah. at all. Not at all. What, amen what, what, the, to that. what the Bible says. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, and the, then the last one I'll say is that calling, and this is what you were saying. We try to make it one thing that's really about a lot more one of the other dysfunctional beliefs is that we just square it in the doing category, right? So it's like we're called to do. And actually, we again, talking theologically, we've got to parse out what it means to work from what it means to be called. Because those two are related, but they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that calling at its core has a lot more to do with belonging that then is expressed in doing rather than calling having to do with doing that then tells us who we are in our being. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes so much sense. And actually, as you're saying it, I'm like, okay, this is why I think I've come to this place uh, of realizing that if I do what matters to me, then mm-hmm. it then it become it's lived out in the call. Because what matters to me is sort of synthesized and, and comes from all these other me's, the, the all these other roles that I play. And then when I'm yeah. just, when it's, when it's born of some cross section of all those things and it's just like, okay, well, this is what matters to me based on where I am in life and the things that I enjoy and what I'm doing and what I care about, even in you writing the book for yourself, um, of course you wrote it for all of us too, but it was working out those things within yourself. Then the work becomes meaningful and you can almost retroactively see the call. You can almost yeah. then go back. And I know that there's a Stanford speech from, um, what's the guy, the Apple guy? Why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? We know. The guy who Which invented one? Apple. The only oh, one. Oh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Thank you. But there's the, a great yeah, the Stanford. the only one. You're right. <laughs> the only one. The, 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 but there's a great um, Stanford speech that he gives, and he talks about being able to connect the dots 
retroactively, like being able to be yeah. in the future and look back. And I think that it's interesting to think about calling even in that context, that when we just don't pursue the call, right, but pursue yeah. all these other little things that the call starts to get shaken out and that sense of belonging and that sense of creativity and all those things can mm -hmm. be born of, of, of that. You talk about in the book something that I find is interesting, and I think for our listeners that are probably older than me, because I think, again, I was in the beginning of things starting to shift a little bit, but you talk about a static versus a dynamic career path. And I think I was amongst many of my friends, an outlier, not a pioneer. I'm careful to say that there are many, many women on the backs and the shoulders that I, that I ride and, and rise up as a result of, but there are definitely fewer women that I think talked about entrepreneurship as I was coming of age. And now that seems to be an option. It's something we discuss. It's, it's on the table. Uh, is that a part of what you're talking about when you talk about this static versus this dynamic career path or is it, or did I, did I get it wrong altogether? No, you're, first of all, you're always right, Netta. That's just, if, if, if ever, if Come ever tell my kids a that. question, I will, I'm going to call them and tell them that. Yeah. Just the idea that it, for us as individuals, and then the lanes via which we have to choose from. So on both layers, like nothing's static anymore. This is back to escalator versus whitewater rapids. Yeah. And the skills that you, that one needs to do well and to thrive, to flourish, let's use our, our uh, shared friends language, Pam King's language of thriving, that if one wants to thrive in this changing world of work, like knowing how to exist in that dynamic nature is the core skill, which is really a skill of dealing with change yeah. and being able to anticipate and find gaps and fill them. So enter the age of the entrepreneurs, not to mention all of the um, sort of technical things at our disposal that we referenced a little bit earlier. And, you know, that can be kind of a daunting thing like, oh my goodness, I wish somebody would just hand me a playbook and I could just do that. And it can also be exhilarating. Oftentimes it's both at exactly the same time, yeah. right? Like, please hand me a playbook and nobody ever hand me a playbook. I just yeah. want to do this my way. Um, it's, you know, one of the things that's interesting is it just brings up so regularly the what's next. When you're talking about dynamic career paths, what's next comes up over and over. We're always reinventing. We're always iterating. We're, you know, constant improvement. And I am a believer in something that you you touched on a, a little bit ago, Netta, which is that any sense of what's next, let's call this discernment, or using another Christian word, but I think broadly speaking, discernment is just trying to figure out what to do, right? And tapping within and tapping into the depth of resources to try to figure out what's next starts with reflection about what's been. Mm. And one of the exercises that I have people do a lot is I actually have them draw what I call a road of calling. I'm like, draw it out. You're going to draw it out. It might be windy. There might be cliffs at certain points. And you're actually going to go back and map what's already been and trace the dynamic nature. And, and that right there starts to unlock so much because you see patterns. You see things, whoa, I didn't even realize those two things were linked. Or, wow, that person shows up in my road every time I feel really, you know, stuck or I feel really grateful. Um, 
And that starts to be a way to think about this idea of calling work and or dynamic career paths as much more of a day by day on the way sort of reality Mm -hmm. than a let me do my 17 year strategic plan that probably isn't going to plan out pan out as we plan anyway, because the world's moving so fast, right? Yeah. And we're moving fast. I mean, you hit on two things that I think Liberty, by the time this episode airs, we will have officially made our uh, rebrand debut. And it, the, the the brand is now Liberty Road. And it's exact, mm. what, what you're talking about is exactly why I wanted to rename it was because as I was interviewing people, I would say close to 50%, let's call it, I should probably go back and, and double check, um, the data there, but would say it was a winding road. It was a long path. Mm. It was a difficult road. It was a difficult path. They they would somehow reference this idea of getting from A to B. And then we have a family motto that's somewhat of a a joke because everybody in our family, with the exception of my sister, who's finishing her PhD work, um, but we're all entrepreneurs. And we've, the family motto is nothing ventured, nothing ventured. That it's really about Mm. this idea of, the the road, the path, the thing that enables you to become the person that you need to become, that that's really where the value is. Sure, we would love to have economic freedom at the end of it. We would love to be able to, um, you know, not only for ourselves, but even for the people that work for us. So I like this idea of this dynamic path. The other thing is we change. Liberty Road is now focused on really women over 40. And that's because I Mm. changed and who I wanted to impact changed. And the space that I felt that needed more voices and more uh, specific teachings or or terminology or access, all all these things was this idea of, okay, we get it. Millennials are awesome at entrepreneurship. But when I walk into those spaces, I'm usually invited as a panelist or a speaker. Nobody thinks I'm actually a guest and, um, (laughs) or I'm there to pick up my daughter. I don't know. But, but I, but I, I found that, no, we, we need these. We're living longer. We're curious deep into our 70s and 80s, why is it that we sort of, okay, by 40, we're supposed to like be there, we've arrived. We we haven't, there's so much more ahead of us. And so the dynamic part for me isn't just the world changing, it's me changing and evolving and wanting mm-hmm. to address other people who are changing and evolving in that in that space. So I feel like your words give freedom to a lot of people who are like, oh, this is as it's supposed to be versus yeah. I'm back to the drawing board again. Mm-hmm. So thanks, yeah, I, thanks I, for I, that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you're so wise. I, I've actually got this image in my mind. I don't know where I picked this up. Maybe it was you, Netta. Maybe it was something I listened to from you, but of it, it's like the image is a, um, a pool scene and you've got like three sets of women in this pool scene. And the women in their 20s, they're like, you know, sunbathing and they're looking at like the women in the 30s who are there who are running after small kids and like (laughs) haven't taken a shower in like six days. And and you get this like contrast between these women in their 20s and their women in their 30s. But all of a sudden, I think it was was like a short story. I literally can't remember. So, but I'm I'm, maybe I'm I'm making up my own stuff. I love it. It wasn't me and I love it. Keep going. All right. But then it pans up. It pans up to a group of women in their 40s. And it's like 
these are women who are in many ways doing exactly what you're describing, which is like getting to know themselves Mm -hmm. in a way that can only happen with age and maturity and aren't quite in the same way running around after the same chaotic things in life and are certainly past the, I'm just here to sunbathe and indulge. And you know, this, this day that I woke up at 11 AM and I, for the, I kid you not, like I'm 38 and I've been thinking, I wonder if my favorite decade until I get to my fifties will be my forties. And, and even in our work at the Dupree center, Netta, we have an entire product that we developed and we call it the road ahead Mm. and it came it came because of exactly what we're talking about here people like oh am i why am i having to start over again why is this whatever and many times in those groups i have found myself as the youngest person in the room because i believe that something happens like and and maybe it's at 40 plus i'm not sure where you finally have enough tools to start to make Mm -hmm. sense of all that's been and the depth and the value of what you bring to the world is so, so rich. So I'm very much looking forward to my 40s. And I think you're hitting on something critical. And I'm thrilled for the rebrand of Liberty Road. Also, I think of the Beatles. So how can that not be an yeah. awesome association? <laughs> right. Well, I think Liberty for her, we we came out all guns blazing when we when we you know, it was all about liberty. And then it was like, oh, we need a URL. And of course, liberty is 200 million things. So liberty for her. (laughs) And I think we've sort of been um, misunderstood as some sort of political group at times. Um, Uh, And it so it it was, I knew there was a rebrand ahead, but I wasn't sure when and why. And this Uh one just sort of organically came. So um, I want to talk about, and we hit it on it a little bit in the beginning, but this idea of, you know, entrepreneurs hear all the time that you've got to be risk tolerant. We hear all the time that make mistakes, go ahead, go for it. They're all learning opportunities. But you, and I don't know if this is you that sort of tagged this, but this idea of resilience and resurrection. And I was like, oh my gosh, what what is that? I mean, as I was reading it in the book, I was like, more, more, more. I want more of this. Tell mm-hmm. our listeners a little bit about what this means. And I also want to say, for those of you who are listening who don't have that Christian context, I want you to keep listening because the things that Michaela is sharing with us, is offering us, I think they're, it's it's food for all of us. It, it's not food for people who are familiar with a particular language or a particular doctrine. It's something that we can all take in. Um, so, so stay with us as she goes into this. And, and, and as I, you know, as, as we talk about things that seem more comfortable in a Christian context, I think that these are, these are truths, uh, regardless of where you, you come from. So I, I needed to say that as, you, as yeah. you go into this particular section, but tell us what you mean by that resilience and resurrection. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And I would just add that, you know, in, in Christian theology, resurrection can have both a capital R talking about an event and also a small R, which mm-hmm. is something that is just really applicable all the time. Okay, so to talk about this, I'm going to back up one step, and that is to some of the research I did. One thing was very true. I, I did, I did, you know, like data surveys and interviews, and then I started talking informally to a bunch of people. Okay, one thing I asked for, I asked four questions at one point, and the questions were: How have you learned to define success? How have you learned to define failure? What practices have moved you towards success? What practices have deal, helped you deal with failure? I'm asking these questions to entrepreneurs, people with with sort of you know moral and faith frameworks. 
And one of the most fascinating patterns was that these people were much more comfortable talking about failure than they were success. Mm. It was like, I don't really know what I've accomplished. Let me tell you about 20 things that didn't really work mm. out. And so in that, uh, I saw that. I see that in you, Netta. I mm. think that you, you're you just, it's just there's something about the entrepreneur that's like, but there's always more and we can yeah. keep going. And there's this real like hunger and tenacity for imagination and anticipation that's really beautiful. So that's one thing. And, but for the rest of us who don't necessarily always have that kind of comfort level with failure, especially in our own businesses, we've invested our time, we've invested, these are our ideas on display to the world. Even if the world is 97 Instagram followers, it's on display to the world. And so the, the sort of the mantra of like, fail fast, fail well, keep learning, is it's like, well, but this is very personal to me. And I, and I need to like go cry it out a little bit when this idea didn't work out. And I started talking, thinking about the idea of like failing well and failing whole. Like, what does it mean to fail well and fail whole? And that is where I'm like, okay, I think that, I think theology might have something to teach us about this. And this is the resurrection story. So for those unfamiliar, the resurrection is the idea that Jesus, as a person, died on a Friday and was resurrected to new life on a Sunday. Sunday being literally Easter Sunday, Friday being Good Friday, Saturday being the waiting time in between. And I have found that much of my work uh, worth doing, the risk that I take, play out in that same arc, right? Mm. It's like I'm going about life, going about life, and then things just like fall flat on their face and they suck. And I feel like some miniature version of Good Friday, like an idea I had is dead in the water, right? It's just dead. And then it's like a lot of silence and waiting and I don't even know what's going to be next. And then eventually in some way, shape or form, new life kind of breaks in. It breaks into that sense of death and loss and blah and failure. And that new life isn't like, okay, I lost my job. Well, then I got a new job. And there was that, you know, small r resurrection. It's like actually usually comes just like the actual resurrection did in a very surprising <laughs> kind of way. And, you know, and and so I have, I have come to be able to recognize when these rhythms of resurrection play out and see them as a gift. And mm. that if that rhythm is indeed playing out, then I'm like, failure's never gonna have the final word. Right. Death and loss and all this crap is not gonna define me. And now we're starting to talk about resilience, which to circle all the way back around is the number one skill that career experts say people need in a changing world of work. So again, it's, this is like soul work is actually the work we need to bring to this moment. But that's how I get from risk to failure to resurrection back to resilience Love um, it. in all this. Love it. I feel like we could drop the mic right there. That's It's so good and so... Um, again, there's so much hope in it because it gives us these opportunities to just be human and kind of go for it. And we tend to think that, you know, we put all of our eggs in one basket and it's like, this has to work. And it's like, it actually doesn't have to work. Um, and whatever you learn along the way will will lead you to whatever's next. But this context that you provide, I think is super helpful. So at the very beginning, I touched on this when you were talking about the idea of 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 work and grief and hope, and you sort of 
um, summarized it as these two things. And I loved this this chapter that you dedicated or introduced, I think it's chapter seven, this idea of, of grief. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that relative to our work. Most of us hear that and we think of the death of a person that we loved, right? But what do you mean um, when you talk about grieving with regard to our work and why does that matter that we grieve, that we grieve? And I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, so good. Grief. I think it's a nice kind of add add on to what we were just talking about. I don't know that a lot of, you know, HR experts, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm selling HR experts short, but grief is not usually like a work topic, exactly as mm. you said. It's like, okay, we're talking about, you know, relationships and people we love. Um, I don't know about you, Netta, but it turns out like I've got a lot of feelings about my work. And as somebody who creates and offers those creations in their various forms, whether it's a six-week cohort or a business or this book I just wrote. It's like I'm offering them to the world. There's always hope. There's always imagination. And and in some form, I've got expectations attached to how I think that's going to play out. And I don't know and I'm pre- I'm pretty strategic, honestly. Not as strategic. You are. Maybe I know you as being very strategic. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like I, I like a, maybe I'm like a junior strategist in, in your league, and I can I don't know if things have ever played out quite as I expected them ever in my entire like. It's like yeah, you can predict and you can hope and you can maneuver. So inevitably, there's a gap between what happened and what you thought would happen, and there's a bit of cognitive dissonance there, and there's a bit of. Um, needing to pay attention and needing to grieve. And why pay attention? Well, because it's happening to us. Mm. You know, it's happening. So it's not just about because we need to learn and make our next product better and, you know, add more value to the world. It's not just about being agents of productivity. It's because it's happening to us. And so we should make sense of it. And that's worth it. That's worth doing. And that is Making sense of what's happening to us is is work that matters. To talk about internal work that matters. Yeah. And one of the, the the last thing I'll say on this is that the reason why I think it's important now more than ever is that we are mostly judging ourselves um, by our lived experience and this gap in expectations, while at the exact same time we're judging others by slivers of exposure we have to what's happening with them, right? So I see you on social media and I'm like, oh, Netta's just killing it. And I feel super happy for you and sort of, you know, distraught about (laughs) how I'm not where you are, you know? And so we have all this, this comparison stuff that happens. There's opportunities for that all the time. So again, that's happening to us. So we have to grieve it because if we don't grieve it, it becomes something else that is damaging and we're not people who are positioned to thrive and flourish and walk through the world and in as curious human beings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's, don't answer this prematurely, but we've uh, changed. I used to ask everybody at the end of the podcast, what does Liberty mean to you? Because that's the name of the podcast and all, all of the things we do around this idea of, liberating a dream, liberating this venture. But what I realized is it's really this idea about liberating yourself. So I've changed the question a little bit to say, what is, how has your work liberated you? So again, don't answer because you're going to answer this at the end. But I think that's a little bit about what you're talking about here and the idea of 
grieving and what that does for us and to us, not just to, you know, to make a better product, to your point. I loved, uh, you, you talked in the book about stories and the importance of stories. And I was like, yes, because that's what I love about the work that I do right now. This podcast is we're telling stories to inspire new, t- new stories, to, um, to help people sort of see what's possible for them. What, why do you think stories are so important? And why did you dedicate a part of the book to the idea that it's important that we tell stories and that they help to transform our, our work? Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I could have probably written an entire book just on stories. Mm. That's how important they are, right? And I think the work that you're doing is critical for many reasons, this included. So thank you for being a champion of stories and for helping us learn and step into our own stories um, in, in the particular way that you do. I, our, this is how we make sense of ourselves, right? It's how mm. It's how we... It's not just how we're inspired and how we imagine, though those things are very much true, but we are inspired and we imagine because when I hear your story, there's a part of my brain, this thing that happens, it's called sympathetic identification in which we actually sort of identify with you, Mm -hmm. right? And we find points to identify. Now, here's the kicker, sympathetic identification, which is critical in film and really any other narrative arc that would take you from a you know, someone's got something that they've got to discover or journey through. Um, they've got a road, right, that they've got to walk. Sympathetic identification doesn't happen with, like, the happies. It doesn't mm. happen with the things that have all gone wonderful. It happens in conflict. When you, when I, when I hear you say, oh, yeah, like, you know, I needed to rebrand. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I, I've been there. Even more than it's like, you're like, oh, I, I'm so awesome at these five things. When I hear that... The same part of me is like, yeah, I'd like to be awesome, but I don't think, oh, I've been there. There's just a different thing that happens in our brain. So the stories are just critical, immersing ourselves in them, learning to tell our own story, which I think is the the road work that you're hitting on, even the stuff we're doing at the Dupree Center. It's critical. Um, and I also think the caution there is in both being brave in how we do that, mm. right? And also knowing when to have boundaries and yeah. who to tell what parts of stories to. There's a whole yeah. dance that happens there. Yeah. And so I wouldn't want to just wash over the stories part without saying that because I think because stories are so powerful, they are both an agent of good and restoration and hope. And at other times, they can be an agent of harm and manipulation and some of the other stuff that we'd rather not be um, proponents of. So yeah, tell stories, listen to stories, learn how to tell your own story. Um that's work worth doing. That's work that matters. I feel like when people have talked about in social media in particular, they've said, be authentic, you know, and then there's this feigned authenticity that we've all perfected. Um, I, a better um, explanation would have been exactly what you just said, like learning how to tell our own stories and telling our stories in order to empower other people, not in order to draw the attention to ourselves and, and not in a, you know, it's, it's great to be proud of yourself and proud of your story and, and able to share it, um, not in a self-loathing sort of way, but in a, in a way that's meaningful for other people. And then also commensurate with the relationship on the other side. Like if you're not intimate with those people, then don't tell intimate details. I mean, try and make them 
Um, and, and I think even in when we talk about intimacy and in storytelling, there's this continuum of how do I tell a story that's an intimate part of me, that's something that's that I can share that will empower others versus an intimate part of me that's that's mine, that's that's sacred and precious to me or the the you know, the few other people that might know them. So I'm going to replace now your description of storytelling anytime I hear authenticity and the need to be that for the sake of social in particular. But I think anybody who is sort of a personality, um, you now, you're an author, you can add that to your name. And as you maneuver and do these podcasts and other appearances and and meeting with people, like how much you share of your own story becomes vital and important. And yet you have to maintain those things that are sacred and special to you and those those few loved ones around you. So Thanks for that. So many good nuggets here, Michaela. I don't know. We could just keep chatting on and on. Um, One of the things that towards the end of the book, you tell a story about your daughter in particular that's so sweet, but it's about this empathetic quality, this trait, this, this way of being, and the importance of empathy in our work and even how it relates to risk taking. Can you kind of describe that for our listeners here today? And by the way, everybody needs to go get this book because Michaela is hitting on things today and we're highlighting some of the things that I was curious about, but there's so much more in the book. And we'll have all of that in the show notes for you guys to access. But anyway, back back to you and talking about this idea of empathy and the the import of it. Yeah, I, I think empathy has been the thing I've been learning the most about over the last decade of my life. And in different ways, it just in, you know, in a bunch of different ways, the personal kind of intimate ways that you just described, the kind of strategic ways that we talked about earlier. And yeah, so let me say a couple of things here. One, back to that research, when I asked people, what were the practices that helped you move towards success and helped you deal with failure? Empathy rose to the top, mm. um, curiously right? Empathy. Interesting. Successful people practice empathy. Again, you can like, you can look someone in the eye, you can sit with them. You can be like, I I see you, I feel you. And now this is Daniel Goleman's work, who is big on emotional intelligence. Like, and I want to join you. I'm not going to be like the meter of all your needs. I'm not a, you know, I don't want to develop a savior complex, but I'm going to join you in whatever is going on. I'm going to, your, your tears are going to be my tears, your joy is going to be my joy. And what entrepreneurs do is they intuitively empathize and then imagine out of empathy, right? So what if, what if we had a brand that served women (laughs) over 40 who just like, it was their time to put good things into the world. That comes from empathy, Netta, like you're, you're talking to all these people and they don't, they don't have what they need. What if we did that? Well, maybe I should start by taking a few risks. Maybe I'll start with a, a, you know, a really like top-notch publication. I'll put some of these stories and these voices in one place. Okay, I'm going to learn what I'm going to learn about publication, and now I'm going to move on to podcasting and community building, and you know, all the. And then I'm, I'm actually I'm learning more from that risk taking and the experiments and the things that are going well and aren't. And now I realize I really need to help people understand this whole road they're on. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've literally just like, you know, given a bird's eye view of my outsider um, lens. <laughs> it's pretty of, accurate. Of it's pretty accurate. Yeah. 
of what you've been doing the last couple of years. And I really do believe that work worth doing, work that matters, is almost always rooted in empathy. And mm. the reason this matters so much for the folks listening today is that this is a skill often gendered in society to be a woman's skill and therefore gendered in society not to be a work skill and not to be some. It's like, no, that's a touchy feeling thing. That's not mm. a thing we do at work. And it's like, actually, it's just the opposite. This, like, the superpower that is so often in people and has been enculturated in particular ways to come forward and stay back in women is a superpower. And I think it's at the heart of the entrepreneurial work that we need, the world needs. Mm. It is an expression of the work and, and what matters to us, just as you have so eloquently said, Netta, and is I think at the heart of the work I'm trying to do. So yeah, empathy matters. It fuels imagination. That imagination leads to the risk-taking. And then we become reflective people along the way. And, and that soulful progression is part of how we we do this. I love that. I I feel um <clears throat> like I'm in the right job because <laughs> the um, both the empathy um, and the curiosity, I think, lead the work that I do. And it's it's nice to hear that, in fact, those are meaningful and worthwhile traits to pour into your work. We all know that they're meaningful and, wor and worthwhile in other areas, um, but that they actually, for me, um, make up the work that I'm doing. And I think for so many listening, uh, again, you're giving context, you're giving permission, you're validating by, by saying those things. So, th so thank you for that. And of course, we can't let you go without asking the question that I brought up earlier. What is it that writing this book specifically has done to liberate you? That's such a good question. Thanks for asking it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm an Enneagram 7. I don't know if you're an Enneagram person at all. No, I am. But I'm an Enneagram 7. What's your number? I'm a 3. 3, yeah. Okay, I was thinking you're a 3. I'm usually pegged as a 3, but I'm not a 3. Yeah, and yeah. I'm surprised to hear you're seven, a 7. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As an Enneagram 7, I I don't like pain. Like, mm. it, it's just like, I just don't like pain. I, I avoid it. And I spend like, you know, the work of my my life and my professional life to reckon with pain and part of pain comes in vulnerability it comes in like so like being vulnerable expressing emotions like I, I do those with people I really trust and love and it's also harder for me to do on a in a wider way mm. and yet that was the invitation of this book um it was that was that was what was compelling me and it felt like that was the work I was supposed to do so I did it and I have been very liberated mm. through kind of opening those doors and letting myself feel all the feels and, you know, just get in there and realize that pain, just like failure, like doesn't have the final word. Um, so it's been liberating in that way. Mm. Well, you um, have liberated us in this time together, and I know so many will continue to be liberated by the work that you've done in the book and the work that you continue to do at the Debris Center and, and all the other things that, that are uh, associated with the work that you're doing and the things that you have sort of put your, your mark on. Um, there is something sort of profound and curious 
and empathetic about the work that that you're doing. And it's an honor to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for making time for us. And it's been a treat for me. I feel like I've been able to catch up a little bit with you. Um, So thanks for that. Liberty listeners, please go to the show notes and check out We'll have all of Michaela's handles as well as um, a link to to grab a book, a copy of the book for yourself. Thanks, Michaela. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Netta. This has been really, really fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. All right, Liberty listeners, we will get you guys uh, next week. So talk to you then. Bye. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty Road is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham and music by Jordan Flower.